Hello, hello, hello. It is me, Agent Scott. Now, Cam is traveling Europe at the moment, so without him, I am literally nothing. But don't worry, we have something for you. What we're doing this week is taking a look at one of our usually very exclusive agents in the field reviews. You'll find those usually over on our Patreon account, which you can find out more about on patreon.com slash spyhards. But the film in question is we are taking a look at 1963's Blake Edwards directed the original The Pink Panther. It's a hilarious film. It's actually one of Cam's favourites too, which we'll get into. And don't worry, the Spy Jinx will resume next week as we will be having a Spy Master interview with Franz Sanchez himself. Mr. Robert Davi is joining us on the show. A very insightful interview there. A lot of behind the scenes about what happened with Licence to Kill and his love for the franchise is abundantly clear. So tune in for that next week. But for now, sit back and enjoy the panther. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I don't have any lips! <laughs> uh, be careful with that champagne bottle there, sailor. <laughs> Bubbly! <laughs> um, well, welcome back to another exclusive Patreon Agents in the Field episode. Cam, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about 1963's The Pink Panther. Uh, you know, a film I have no connection with whatsoever. It's weird. I think I've seen the, like the two thousands remake with the, that. What's his name? Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Thank you. I think that's my only connection with. But I seem to like. I, I guess through like the zeitgeist, know who Inspector Clouseau is, mm-hmm. and and like the accent that's uh, mostly missing from this film, uh, which is strange. Right. Yeah, okay, so I it was my pick for this episode of Agents in the Field, and I wanted to do Pink Panther for a while. I just kind of like that 60s vibe. We've just talked mm-hmm. about Casino Royale. So you have David Niven, you have Peter Sellers here. Also, uh, you have Robert Wagner, who pops up, and of course is in the Austin Powers, but uh, this wasn't chosen because of him. It was more the Peter Sellers, David Niven side of things. So I, I kind of do have a fairly long history with the pink panther franchise so i guess i'm in the uh, opposite side of the field or whatever well you must be tickled pink to be talking about it this week i am yes yes that was a that was a labored pun but for those of you who have never seen 1963's the pink panther much like i was until a few hours ago today <laughs> here is your letterbox.com synopsis the pink panther a madcap frolic of crime and fun. The trademark of the Phantom, a renowned jewel thief, is a glove left at the scene of the crime. Inspector Clouseau, an expert on the Phantom's exploits, feels sure that he knows where the Phantom will strike next and leaves Paris for the Tyrolean Alps, where the famous Lugashi jewel, the Pink Panther, is going to be. However, he does not know who the Phantom really is, or for that matter, who anyone else really is. That is very convoluted in terms of a plot synopsis of the Pink Panther, but, uh, well, it's a madcap frolic, so what can you do? 
I'm still scratching my head, so I guess it kind of suits in that in that domain. Yeah, no kidding. So, so well, no, go. On. Uh, you you sort of set it up before, Cam. You you have yeah. a historyed a connection with the Pink Panther. As I said just a second ago, I really haven't seen anything to do with this, these films. Surprisingly, it feels like kind of, kind of an institution looking at the fact that it's had like seven sequels. Is it seven? There might be more. <laughs> it feels like there's so many of them. Yeah, so like this is the Blake Edwards directed franchise and Blake Edwards was a big comedy director at the time. For me, it all started with Return of the Pink Panther. Um, Peter Sellers had done a couple Pink Panther movies in the 60s. And then, you know, as we talked about in our Casino Royale episode, he was having some personal problems and his career was a little quieter for a bit. But he came back in the 70s and did Return of the Pink Panther, which aired on TV. And I watched it as a kid and it became like my favorite movie. I was obsessed with Return of the Pink Panther. And so, you know, my mom had watched them growing up and said, oh, okay, well, obviously, you know, the kids could be interested in these. So my mom showed us Shot in the Dark which is the sequel, the second entry in the franchise, which is the best in the franchise. Very, very funny movie. And so we love that. And um, then my mom showed us, you know, I saw Pink Panther Strikes Again, Revenge of the Pink Panther. I saw them kind of out of order, but I do remember one day my mom rented the Pink Panther from the grocery store for me. And I came home and watched it. And I watched it after watching the sequels, a, bi- a big bunch of the sequels, which are very specifically Inspector Clouseau, wacky, madcap comedies. And so, like, what I loved about The Pink Panther was not what this movie, The Pink Panther, was about. And I remember just watching it as a kid and being like, okay, Scott, you've just watched it. I just rewatched it last night. Imagine watching it if you were 11 years old. Well, okay. I, I suppose I'll, I'll I'll start to talk about how I feel about it then. Yeah. I, I struggled at 35. <laughs> I can only imagine how f- infuriating this film must be as a as an 11-year-old. I, I was, in my notes, I actually wrote this down. It's kind of akin to... Um, a friend of the show it was on our Thunderball episode, Mr. Mark O'Connell. Great chap. Read his book, folks, if you ever get a chance. And in his memoir, uh, Catching Bullets... The memoirs of a Bond fan. Um, he talks about how he discovered the Bond films out of order on TV and rentals and things like that. And he watched Doctor No quite late in his childhood and re- remarked that it was kind of weird because it didn't feel like it was quite there yet and hadn't really like gestated and, and grown into the films that he knew and loved. So he wasn't really a big fan. And I could see that. Because I I knew about Cusso. I I was expecting this film to be like wacky, slapstick comedy, nonsense, people falling, pratfalls everywhere. Instead, it seems like in Inspector Clouseau's world, that's happening. But everywhere else in the film, it is played straight. Yeah. It's so so confusing. I, I don't know how. I don't know how this film got so many sequels. Yeah, because I think the story was, like, when they were making this, Blake Edwards was suddenly like, oh my god, like, Peter Sellers has really found something in this character, that should be the sequel, and then it kind of just spun off into these Clouseau-centric films, to the point where they made Trail of the Pink uh, Panther after Peter Sellers had died, and it stars him. (laughs) They're just propping up his dead body or something. It's all just, like, old footage they had from previous movies, and they build a movie around it. It's atrocious. Wow. Can we do that next? 
I guess we probably could. Uh, I think David Niven is in it also. Uh, I think they dub him over with like someone else in that one or something. It's weird. How, how to lose Patreon followers in one week. <laughs> no kidding. There's Follow other Pink us. Panthers. We can do uh, Pink Panther Strikes Again on the main feed because it does have some spy connections. But yeah, the rest of them are more just capers. Um, but uh, this one, yeah. As I, you know, kind of alluded, when I was 11, I was baffled by this movie. I didn't understand why I was watching this, like, kind of dragged out romance between David Niven and Claudia Cardinale, where, again, like, I was used to, like, hijinks from Pink Panther movies, and this was, like, kind of slow. It had a musical number for some reason. It just was not what uh, I was really uh, looking for at the age of 11. Years later, I bought the DVD set um, that collects a whole bunch of them together, and I um, found myself more appreciative of this movie within the, you know, the context of it being just this single comedy made in 1963. Is it successful? And I, I think it is, but it is so different from the sequels that mm. it's so frequently compared against them. Um, but sort of as a unique vision in 1963, I think it's interesting. I I did enjoy watching it again last night, I got to say. I, I, I suppose I like... I kind of soured it there when I, when I was talking about it. I, I found things I enjoyed in this film. It wasn't a complete train wreck for me. I think my expectations were just in the wrong place. It's interesting because oh, yeah. I, I remember seeing like cartoons of the Pink Panther as a kid. And, and as I say, I, I think I remember seeing the 2000s remake, but I had never seen any of these films. And it's probably just an age thing. I'm probably just a tad too young for them to be played on television. And so I never caught them. In my mind, I thought Inspector Clouseau was also the Pink Panther. As in, like, it was like a nickname or something. And when they introduced the jewel at the start, I'm like, huh? Yeah. I I was already on the back foot. Like, I I didn't know what was going on for the entire film. And, and, but like, but as I said, I found moments of hilarity that the scene in this film with um, basically everyone's in the bedroom at one point or another. Yeah. It, it's probably the highlight of the film for me. It's a hilarious, like, protracted gag um and peter sellers is is phenomenal in it i've never seen peter sellers in anything apart from a, a portion of what's new pussycat and um this film and casino royale and this is by far my my his best performance that i've seen oh he's a genius in the other films even when some of them dip in quality like revenge of the pink panther he is just unbelievable and it was the sort of thing where when the franchise wanted to keep going after he died, they like really struggled. They made one called Curse of the Pink Panther with the dad from Blossom, which will mean something to, I think, North American listeners. Um, it's terrible. They also did um, Son of the Alan Pink Panther. Alan Alder in one of them. No, Alan Arkin. That was in the 60s after oh. um, Peter Sellers bounced after Shot in the Dark. They tried to make a movie called Inspector Clouseau starring Alan Arkin. That's a total misfire they also made um one in the 90s called son of the pink panther with roberto benini that is atrocious like it's unbelievably awful and uh then it was kind of dormant until steve martin came along and did two thuddingly mediocre pink panther revivals (laughs) and (laughs) since then it's been very quiet i think the thing is you need a comedian who is incredibly good at pratfalls and Mm. physical comedy but also has like a lightness of touch and like 
Steve Martin is a very gifted comedian, but he's not really like a physical comedy guy in the way I think of Peter Sellers. And, you know, who knows? I, I feel like we will have a Pink Panther revival again in the future. It just feels like the kind of franchise you would constantly be kicking the tires to try to restart, especially with the music. The Henry Mancini music mm. is so iconic. It's the sort of thing you want to work into your, you know, into a franchise. You play that music in a trailer, people know what it means. So uh, in an era of franchise culture, it feels like we are very, you know, shortly away from a uh, Pink Panther, you know, uh, next well, version. Just to jump off of that thought, and we'll get back to our review in a second. Yeah. I actually wrote down some thoughts about a revival or a renewal of this. I don't think it could happen in a live action. I don't think comedy really exists in that form anymore. But I think it would be a, an animation. But if we're talking, I mean, I think animation could work for sure. I mean, there's such a background with animation with this franchise because of the mm. opening credits and just how iconic the you know cartoon character is. But I think when you look at like the um, the Peter Se- uh, Sellers centric ones, they are ultimately whodunits or caper stories about mm-hmm. kind of a broad character. I think that could work, but maybe even like a sitcom, like a streaming sitcom version of that could work. Like, well, like an episodic TV show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, in, in a world where they're doing Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers movies just to play on nostalgia, maybe. Apparently that's maybe. great. I'm going to watch it tonight. Yeah, I've been told it's really good as well. I might check it out if I had Disney+. Plus. Um, but yeah, apparently there's tons of, uh, tons of film references in there. Apparently you have to really put your film reference hat on to get through that one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that's actually right up your alleyway. But oh, yeah. back to the Pink Panther. I, I, I just don't see it really being any more than like a kid's animation. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think there's, there's a lot of money and opportunity and market for new kids stuff. But I just don't see adult comedies really, apart from like awkward cringe comedy like The Office stuff, really sort of breaking out anymore. I think it's tough because comedy has changed to where like you don't really make films based around kind of weird characters anymore like you don't the days of like your your ace venturas or your austin powers feel kind of in the past now i it's the sort of thing it could come back around at any time everyone's got to be edgy and emotional now yeah yeah or it's just like comedy is more grounded in like a realistic setting things like um you know the the judd apatow type stuff although i say that anchorman was hugely popular and those are kind of broad characters well the first one was the second one was a Absolute misfire, wasn't it? Financially, it made money. <laughs> so I think that's a success <laughs> in their I'll eyes. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. So this movie, though, is so interesting because it is, in some ways, really dated. Like, the idea of sitting a 2022 young person down in front of this movie is insanity. Like, it just, I don't think it would work at all. But at the same time, that's kind of what I enjoyed about it last night was it's this very like, it's appropriate it's set as Ski Cabin because it's very like cozy and it's just a total hangout vibe movie of kind of light comedic hijinks at a ski resort and people just having fun and stopping to like watch musical numbers. It has that sort of 60s, you know, lounge atmosphere in spades. That that musical number got like two different notes. (laughs) out of me like what is why is there a note uh, why is there a song intermission in this film for no reason whatsoever 
Like, what's up with that? And it, like, it's the whole song. She goes for yeah. four minutes miming at the camera. She's looking at the viewer. It's, it's. <laughs> I wish I was on whatever they were on in the sixties when they wrote this. I, it, it was a very confusing couple of hours for me last night. That musical number, and it's sung by Fran Jeffries. Um, that song. It's very, you know, you think of the 60s, though. There's all those, like, Elvis movies. There's Mm -hmm. the Beatle films. There's, like, your beach party movies. There's, like, Disney films where everything just stops dead for, like, musical numbers. So it feels very appropriate for the time. But when you watch it now, you're like, what is going on? (laughs) It's it's interesting you mentioned the ski lodge of it all as well. I mean, and I I do like the sort of hangout factor of this film. It really does feel sort of low key low stakes i know they're trying to steal a gem but it's just a gem there's no you know purple beam coming out of the sky or anything like that it really is just people kind of just having some fun at a ski resort but i was constantly waiting for someone to get shot through the glass oh yeah and then i realized that one of the characters in this film is from the man who knew too much the man who knew too much uh the uh, original or the remake the remake. So I was referencing the original with the shot through the glass at the ski lodge. I'm now referencing the remake. It is Brenda DeBanzi as Angela Dunning, the uh, the lady about town. Oh, okay. She is the one of the two assassins that tries to kill the boy. In uh, yeah, she's the one that helps him escape at the end. Oh, I did not make that connection. She wasn't an uh, actress I was like ultra familiar with revisiting man who knew too much so i did not make that connection at all good good one there it's just i i I, because i stare at imdb whilst we do these reviews i see people's like photos so Mm. when i was looking at it i was like hey i clicked on that (laughs) ah there it is hitchcock so hey i wonder what she preferred doing this or hitchcock we'll never know yeah uh but so i i guess like you you got a lot more enjoyment out of this review, this view than I think I did. But I, I still took a lot of fun away from it. I think it was interesting to see David Niven playing a straight character. And I mean right. straight as in non-comedic, although he was quite clearly straight in this film too. Um, because obviously Casino Royale is really my only other experience with him and he's, you know, stuttering all over the place. Very bizarre performance, but fun. But this is... There is no comedy from the Sir Charles Listen character. And that's one of the things I, I think I bumped on because really the the comedy is really just coming from Peter Sellers. Um, I mean, I thought there was a lot of comedy attached to the fact he's supposed to be this uh, irresistible womanizer. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, David Niven, I think, was 53 at this point, And, you know, in those days, people aged a little differently. There's a lot more mileage on them. And I'm like... The fact that like Cappuccino and Claudia Cardinale are like throwing themselves at him, I'm like, this is ridiculous. But uh, I totally buy it. You buy it? I buy it, man. He's like, oh he's got a God. charm about him. <laughs> I, I can't. I'd like to be in his company for some time. I don't know. I got the. What was it? He's like claiming he's always got like yeah, he's always juggling women. He's always got like eight women in the air or something like that. That was his. Like, yeah. That was what he was known for about town. But it's interesting because, you know, listeners, um, well, I, you, know, you guys are following us on Patreon. You, you, you've you listened a lot. You know what's going on. In a few months' time, I'll be going to Las Vegas with Cam. And mm. one of the things we're doing there is is I'm getting married uh, to my partner. And, um, <laughs> not to me. <laughs> not to Cam. Uh, he, he keeps asking. 
Just asking and asking and asking, but it just, it's not going to happen, folks. I'm Let's sorry. Let's make this podcast marriage official. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put you on my knock list. Um, so David Niven is in this film, in, and he walks in at one point, and I'm like, he's wearing my tuxedo for Vegas. Ooh. That red one. Oh, my God, really? Oh, spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows anyway. You'll, you'll soon see it. But, yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, so he's, he's got class and style back in the 60s, and I'm just emulating it now. I didn't know, but clearly I've been looking up to David Niven all my life. It's funny, though. Like, I have, um, you know, male friends of his sort of age group, and I'm like, most of them just want naps. <laughs> they are not these like jet setting womanizers. I'm Maybe like, that's what uh-uh. the naps are for. It's like in between naps, <laughs> they are just like juggling women around or men. And there's a real like boozy sort of uh, atmosphere in this movie. Mm. Like there's a whole scene where he's getting drunk with Claudia Cardinale on like champagne. And then the next morning he goes to see her and he's sitting there like drinking again. <laughs> and it's like, wait, isn't it morning time? Like what the heck? But you say like there's no comedy with him. I kind of think there is. I think what we're seeing here is very, very, very light romantic comedy comedy. And it's just like when you look at the Peter Sellers stuff, it's much more exaggerated. And you go, no, that's actually funny. But I think in intention, those scenes with David Niven and Claudia Cardinale are supposed to be funny. The stuff on the rug is... I, I would I would actually say yeah. it's more Claudia Cardinale that's funny in that scene than, than he is. I think it's his reactions that are supposed to be kind of the comedy. Sure. Um, maybe it's my like, oh, he's so, he's so progressive. Just sort of watching that scene. Like, it, isn't she meant to be a virgin? And he's just trying yeah. to deflower her. I was just like, mm, this a creepy old dude who's perving on this 20 year old woman. I'm like, mm, I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, it's definitely the 60s we're in, folks. Um, but I, I, I can see your point. But in terms of what I found funny, it was. Well, I'm not saying I was laughing. Oh, okay. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying in terms <laughs> Sounds of like, like you were was... Cam. Cancel Cam. <laughs> More from the point of view of like, if I'm an audience in the '60s, I think this is supposed to be where the comedy is coming from. But like, uh, comedy ages, movies we watched in the '90s don't even hold up sometimes when we watch them well, now. So like, I think this kind of section of the movie, it's very gentle, very light comedy that I don't know plays like gangbusters now gentle um we'll just look at that for a second let's examine an anecdote you told me earlier and and put it into context of the scene on the set they realized that inspector clouseau is probably where the money is in this film but david niven is the lead yeah as uh sir charles lytton it's interesting because like how do you say they had cast a different actor that wasn't as good a comedic actor as Peter Sellers. And and then you would have got the... He obviously wouldn't have jumped off the page or off the screen as well as Peter Sellers did. Do you think this film would be anywhere near remembered? Well, they did cast another actor as Clouseau, who dropped out. Really? Do I yes, know them? And, yes, you darn well do. It was... Peter Ustinov, star of One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. (laughs) Now, to be fair, Peter Ustinov is a brilliant actor and very funny in things that aren't One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. So, like, if you're going to hire a comedic actor, he probably would have been really fun. But he didn't have that Peter Sellers just unbelievable mastery of physical comedy. Like, I think he could have been funny, but I don't think it 
probably would have led to him having this runaway, you know, sequel spin-off franchise. It's funny, we're recording this on the one-year anniversary of our One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing episode dropping. All intentional. It's, it's Yeah, this is serendipitous. I cannot shake the specter, the giant skeleton specter of One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, clearly, on this show. Yeah. But yeah, interesting that Peter Ustinov was going to be... I don't think I've ever really seen him in anything apart from Dinosaurs. Maybe the odd comedic film here in the UK, uh, you know, maybe a carry-on or something I'm not remembering particularly well but you would know him from um the disney robin hood where he was the voice of prince john okay sure i I, but then i i can't really get a grip of what he would be like in in the clouseau role but yeah i I just think i find it interesting i i wonder if this would have spun off and been a bunch of sequels and or maybe because you didn't have someone knocking out of the park in second bay like the second position i wonder if niven would have been remembered as the funny one from this film entirely possible and like i remember being frustrated as a kid like wondering why is david niven the star of this movie like peter sellers is you know as a kid i worshipped like peter sellers just based off of those pink panther movies i thought he was like the greatest comedian i'd ever seen and so when i watched this movie i was so baffled as to like i don't understand like why am i watching david niven throughout this movie and i i have to imagine like when they're creating this movie that David Niven thinks they're building a showcase for him and it must have been maybe a little frustrating just as you know being an actor watching a supporting character just completely run away with not only your movie but your franchise Mm. like that's got to be a little kind of like oh well that kind of stings but clearly it's just like Peter Sellers was just firing on all cylinders and just in building a character right off the bat the second he's in that police office and does like the fall down with the globe you're like this guy's funny Mm-hmm. And it's funny how often the pratfalls that occur through the movie feel very low key, mm-hmm. whereas the sequels would make a much bigger deal and you'd have these incredible set pieces about Cluzo's bumbling and you would bring in supporting characters that would really tie into that world. Whereas like here, it's like very subtle things where like he'll put his hand on the top of like a hearth and it burns his hand. And he like, you know, has a whole little bit there putting his hand in like a, you know, like a stein of beer. But like... They aren't big, exaggerated set pieces. And nor is anyone reacting to them, particularly. No. Like, everyone's just kind of, they're just kind of there. Um, I, I do want to draw go back to something you said, actually, that you idolized Peter Sellers growing up. That does finally, after two years, explain the piss-poor attempt at a mustache that you have. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> and what people won't know is we actually have about four episodes that we recorded at the beginning where Cam insisted on putting on a French accent the entire time. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> okay. Um, bon. But, um, yeah, I, I just find that sort of the, the what-if scenario to be quite fascinating. And also, like, one thing I, I, I found interesting about this film when I was just sort of ruminating on it later on is, and also you telling me the story about Houston of as well. This film isn't written or made to make him a star. Like, Clouseau looks like an idiot at the end of this film. Yeah. Like, he really gets effed up. Like, he, he ends up in prison. Like, not a good setup for a sequel. And you have to think, I, I assume, if there was ever going to be a sequel, they weren't, like, writing to have a sequel, I assume, at this point. It would be about the exploits of the Phantom, which is, you know, David Niven. Yeah. Um... Which I assume you do follow up later because he comes back, right? Yeah, he comes back in Return of the Pink Panther. 
played by um, um, Christopher Plummer, actually, in that film. And uh, David Niven does play the role again later down the road in Trail of the Pink Panther, which is, as I said, the one where they just use all recycled footage for the most part of Peter Sellers. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it it's interesting because like Shot in the Dark, the sequel, is based on like a play, and then they worked in the character of uh, Inspector Clouseau. So like that one is just an entirely different beast. Very, very funny movie, though. This one, were this intended to launch a Clouseau spinoff, I think you would have a whodunit. And this movie makes it very clear, pretty much right out of the gate, that David Niven is the Phantom, mm-hmm. which really removes any tension in terms of Peter Sellers capturing him. And it's interesting just from like structuring a movie to have a character who is this dashing rogue who wants to steal a diamond, and you have a police officer there at this resort who's incompetent. So you've just like kind of cut down any tension you might have because Clouseau's bumbling all over the place. You know, Clouseau's wife is, you know, in cahoots with the Phantom and he's oblivious. So like there's not a lot of tension aimed towards your Phantom character. It's a really odd structure and that's what gives it, I think, more of just like this hangout vibe versus a uh, particularly well-assembled like caper comedy. Yeah, and that's probably some of the stuff I struggled with in terms of just trying to take it as a piece and not having any foot in any of the previous films. Um, I, I wonder what audiences at the time in 63 when they were walking out of the pictures were saying. Probably, I think you touched on it earlier, the scene in the bedroom where you have the multiple characters all you know going in and out it's like a bedroom farce of characters mm-hmm. under the bed outside of doors outside the windows you know I, all over I the call place. my bedroom the same thing exactly exactly total farce mm-hmm. um but Shit show, that's Shit show. that sequence is inspired and i think like cappuccine deserves a lot of points like she's mm-hmm. doing some fantastic physical comedy as well people always credit peter sellers but like i think cappuccine is incredibly good in that sequence but like that stuff and then also at the end where you have like the cars careening all over the streets it's like these kind of high energy like madcap sequences i think are what grab the audience and ultimately would be what leads into the you know the sequels yeah i could see that i i and ultimately i i assume at this point obviously david Niven's obviously a star at this point well established oh, yeah. but i i peter sellers must have a name for himself by this point too Peter Sellers is that? I don't. Um, he he's definitely on the rise. He's. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember. I don't know. Had he done Doctor Strangelove yet? I don't think so. But it's around that sort of point in time, and so like that 63, 64 period for him is going to be massive. Sixty four was Strangelove. So that okay. Was, so yeah, this is like the genesis of Sellers, basically. Sixty four is the launch year because. This movie um, opened internationally in 63, but I believe North America was actually 64. And then Shot in the Dark also opened in 64. And then Dr. Strangelove in 64 as well in North America. So, like, this was the year of Peter Sellers. Right. Okay. Um, I I suppose let's look at some of the other things that this film created. We we briefly mentioned it earlier, but the, the Pink Panther theme. Yeah. I don't hear it really get mentioned much these days but in terms of iconic long-lasting themes this is up there with i think the bond theme with you know um, adam's family 
Star Trek, that still hangs around the old TOS theme. You know, it's just, it's so simple, effective. You could hum two, three bars, and I think people know exactly what you're talking about. And it's just a, a masterful piece of music. And also the intro sort of sequence with the Pink Panther itself is also really good too. I mean, it launched all of those Pink Panther cartoons. And I mean, the movies obviously did a lot to keep sort of the popularity of that Henry Mancini music going. But also those cartoons were a big deal back in the day. I mean, I don't... Is Pink Panther still around? Do kids have Pink Panther content now? Like, I definitely did when I was a kid. Um, and seeing kind of old archival stuff they would have been just showing in reruns. But I don't... I, is the Pink Panther a thing anymore? I remember the first Kinder Surprise I ever got had a Pink Panther toy in it. So that would have been probably the 80s, early 90s. But... Uh, I think the I think the cartoon show seems to have stopped in about the 70s. Okay. I'm just trying to see if there's been any revivals since. But even like... Um, the Henry Mancini music that's not the Pink Panther theme is fantastic. There's that song that, um, you know, shows up later, sung by Fran Jeffries. But, like, you hear the musical cues from that song throughout the movie, especially, when, like, when it's David Niven on the ski slopes. And it's that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You hear that cue a lot in the movie. And when I heard it last night, I'm like, holy crap, why do I know that? And actually, there is a Canadian rap group called Swollen Members that had a really big hit song called uh, Bring It Home that used that musical cue. And so I like literally paused the movie and was like pulling up that video and being like, oh, my God. And like that made me nothing to, uh, you know, people outside of Canada. But Canadians know who Swollen Members were. They were huge for, uh, I guess, the early 2000s. We've all dealt with Swollen Members from time to time. Mm. Uh, just to bring us back to the Pink Panther cartoon, the original cartoon stopped in the 70s, but it's had several revivals. Okay. Most recently in 2010 on the Cartoon Network. So it's still being made, not today, but in the last 10 years, there's been a Pink Panther new cartoon. So that, that franchise has actually lived longer than the film franchise. Yeah, and it's a great way to keep a brand going because people loved those animated credits. And I really enjoyed watching them last night. They get more creative as the franchise goes, but uh, just you look at a, you know, entry point for a franchise as you know, you referenced earlier, Dr. No feels kind of weird, but it has certain things. The bond theme is there. Mm -hmm. There's enough recognizable elements that you can carry on and just have those kind of those, those aspects and, you know, those tropes and bring them back and people will have recognizability. Pink Panther has that. And I mean, musically, it's so important. And those opening credits are so important. And they they just make it seem a bit more sort of fun and up-tempo. It's just a nice little bit. And also, oh, I like a bit of animation in these, these earlier films. But it, I, I don't know what else in terms of films at that time were doing this. Obviously, there were cartoons before films back in like the 30s and 40s. That's not a new thing. Yeah. But I don't know. that that combo of the music and the cartoon. It just it had an identity. It was very, and it set that very early on. So I think it's actually probably quite interesting if someone were to go and sort of chart the course of the Pink Panther films against the Bond films. Obviously, Bonds have lasted a lot longer. I'd hate to see what the No Time to Die equivalent of the Pink Panther is. It's dark. Yeah. <laughs> Although, Trail of the Pink Panther, Peter Sellers had, had died at that point, so maybe that's No Time to Die. <laughs> Just uh, the rockets land, and then like a little uh, mannequin body goes, ah! 
Oh, no, no, no. Ooh! <laughs> Wee! <laughs> Ooh la la! <laughs> I would like to know actually when they started doing like animated um, character opening credits like this mm. because I know they exist. Disney movies did them quite a bit. But I sure. would like to know where the trend started. I mean, Pink Panther was a hit, so it might have started here. But I think, I think even things like "It's a Mad, 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 Mad World" did them as well. Yeah, it's got to be. I feel like it's a '60s thing, not a '50s thing. Probably more of a '60s thing. Just you just tend to think of the '60s as a more colorful period of time, and yeah. having animation on screen just sort of ties in quite well. The other thing I quite liked I wanted to bring up was and it only really happens at the beginning of the film. It's actually my like first note in my notes is because there's this section at the beginning where they're sort of setting up where each character is. And it's like, meanwhile, meanwhile, meanwhile. It's quite the travel log. Yeah. Like you're in Paris, you're in wherever the chateau is, I think you're well, I forget everywhere else, but there's at least like four different five different locations. And they are shooting in those locations. And also Lugash. We went to Lugash. Where's that? That's the fictional country that Claudia Cardinale is the uh, princess of. Oh, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> yes, right at the beginning. Yes. Um, that was in my credits. I, I, when I was reading the intro, I was like, I couldn't remember what that was. Oh, yes, this is the Lugashi jewel, the pink panther. Yeah, mm. yeah. But yeah, I, I, it, was, it's, it reminded me a lot of, again, weird connective tissue, but like uh, with Bond, but... Obviously, travel logs at this point were very interesting because people didn't couldn't go to Paris or they couldn't go to Lugash um, because it doesn't exist. But obviously, flying was a lot more expensive in those days, so you would go to the cinema to see these places. Like I remember when you know, Japan is in you only live twice, and that's that's one of the biggest hooks that film has. It's just seeing Japan, although it's mostly hills in the film. But yeah. I, I guess that was something they were planning when they do this, but I think it still holds up and looks really good now. And also what they're doing as well is giving you kind of a, a window into like high class living. Like this mm. chateau they spend most of the movie at is not something your average person could have been able to afford if they even if they could travel. Like it's giving you that sort of entryway into watching glamorous movie stars. I mean, you don't get much more glamorous than like, you know, Cappuccino and Claudia Cardinale and... I mean, Robert Wagner would have been, you know, seen as like a real kind of like heartthrob at the time as well. There was like kind of like the beautiful people in a beautiful location. It would have just kind of fit that kind of Hollywood movie vibe that people mm. would have found very appealing. Like there's been money spent on this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If it, it feels decadent. Uh, it, it's interesting as well. Like, uh, like you look at us now, like uh, when we go on holiday to Vegas or something like that joining rooms and the room service it all seems quite normal but you're right in the 60s that's 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 the high class living right there having having someone that you drop a plant in your room and a butler and a maid turn up within five minutes to clean it up like i've got stuff broken in my house right now i haven't cleaned up from like days ago to be fair you and i have stayed at some vegas uh, hotels where they wouldn't have cleaned it up either <laughs> they still haven't yeah it's true it's true this movie also has something else that's very 1960s and I've watched a fair number of 60s comedies, and it's something that I find to be this recurring trope I kind of don't understand a lot of the time. It's done well here, but it's the party that goes out of control into chaos trope. And it's like, 
it is in so many 60s comedies. Breakfast at Tiffany's has this. You can even apply it to Casino Royale if you want to be a little bit liberal with how you define a party where you have that entire casino turning into complete chaos at the end of the movie. And here we have this costume party um, just going out of control. I did love the the two dudes in the zebra costume. That was amazing. But it's, again, like it seems like that was a real set piece in 60s comedy which is like just the party going to create like absolutely crazy it, it that sequence has one of my favorite jokes in the film when he's telling the sergeant off okay because he uh let me get the line up for you um he's <laughs> yeah uh any more behavior like this and i'll have your stripes <laughs> that's right yes <laughs> now that it, in in police and like military vernacular if you're a sergeant you have stripes so that's what he's actually saying, but then the zebra stripes. Anyway, it just made me laugh. That was a good scene. But yes, it is interesting when these sort of parties falling apart. But again, it's like high-class living because you wouldn't really be able to throw these kinds of parties if you were less than upper class, I think, because the outfits are quite expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, having the two monkeys was weird. I mean, it's being thrown by a princess. Yeah, true. I haven't, I haven't rubbed shoulders with many princesses. No. Just you. <laughs> I am also from Lugash. <laughs> yes, yes you are. Um <clears throat> But it, it is funny that this whole that whole joke comes back in this again. I do think the film loses a little bit towards the end for me. I think the high point was really that bedroom scene and also yeah. the bit where the bottle pops under the covers earlier on as well. That did get a laugh out of me. That was incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well staged. And obviously, I don't think that was actually a champagne bottle exploding. I think that was probably a hose or something. Because <laughs> it, it kept coming, guys. Oh, it did. Yeah. I would have to imagine that was a... Uh, yeah, I think a hose is probably the correct answer. Uh, well, let's not dig into that anymore, shall we? <laughs> um, did you have any final notes on it, Cam, before we go to our question? Well, now I'm debating, like, do I think it loses its way at the end? I think the stuff with the cars careening up and down the street works really well i think that's fine just with like peter sellers in that night costume it looks hilarious just to see this like this jeep whipping by with him on the back of it um the court case is i guess more the question mark is the court case at the end funny enough to warrant inclusion i i don't know that it is it's it delivers your ending of clouseau going to prison but with comedy, you kind of want to end on a high, and I don't know that this movie ends on a high. I think one of the issues here, and maybe the issue with the film, is it doesn't have the right lead. Yeah. Like it wants you to want Clouseau to have like a a comeuppance or like to lose because it's funny, but because Peter Sellers sort of steals the show, you're actually rooting for him to solve the uh, the, the the mystery, you know, catch the phantom and sort of win the day but in the end your your actual hero that you've actually been enjoying the whole film is taken away in handcuffs did you ever feel like the movie did a decent job at convincing you that um, david niven was the lead of this movie maybe at the start before things got very convoluted and there was multiple people in bedrooms all jumping around and the robert wagner had turned up and it all gotten weird when he was when when David Niven was like rubbing shoulders with the princess and like I can see that he had the big romance scene of the film I suppose 
he's kind of yeah he's kind of filmed in the way where he's like this big handsome chap and he's got all the girls so i can kind of see how they're trying to portray him that way but i think one of the things that peter sellers actually managed to capture with that character is not only is he a bumbling buffoon but you're rooting for him he's the underdog almost you want him to succeed uh despite him being an absolute moron uh and i i guess that's credit to peter sellers yeah, like the David Niven character is, I think the way I look at him now is very differently than maybe an audience in the 60s would have. Whereas like, I find watching him now, I'm not really on his side. I find kind of the the, the love affair he's having with Claudia Carnelli pretty unconvincing and kind of creepy. So it's not like I'm like, oh, I'm loving the sweeping romance of these two characters. Like, it's just not connecting with me. Maybe you've stumbled on something there. Because, and it just jumped out to my head as well. Maybe it's to do with time. Because, well, we know how this film was aimed. David Niven was going to be the star. Peter Sellers was the comedic backup that loses in the end. And that was going to be the end of it, really. But as times and sensibilities have changed, you think about, like, I keep bringing back James Bond. I'm sorry, because there's way more to the spy world than James Bond. But it, it just seems to have a weird parallel with this film. And because of Casino Royale 67, it's probably quite fresh in my mind. You think about James Bond, and he has all these things where he's like charming girls, and he's eating caviar and, and foie gras, gambling at casinos, things that we don't do. But then he's also kicking butt. He's taken down Blofeld. He's taken down Spectre. He's doing all these kick-ass action scenes, right? So Charles Lytton is James Bond without the cool. <laughs> So you don't you don't want to be him, except maybe when he's with the princess. So you get that bit. But he's not kicking ass. He's just an old man in a tuxedo who has far more money than you and uh, is very good at stealing things. So he's he's like a bad guy from day one. Yeah, so you don't you don't imprint yourself on him. You end up imprinting yourself on the inspector. And maybe that's why Sellers takes it away. And it's like because Clouseau feels like an underdog who yet, like, we're very sympathetic to him. You know, his wife mm. is clearly not into him. I'm, I'm fascinated how this marriage even happened. <laughs> this seems like a bizarre circumstance. He's very good with that violin. He, yeah, the Stradivarius. <laughs> that made me laugh. But, um, like, the fact that, like, you know, his wife is off with, uh, you know, David Niven's character. It's like they're almost, like, pointing, like, David Niven is the cool one in the room. But, like... Clouseau is such a lovable underdog that they never give him any sort of like douchey quality or you go, you know what? I'm glad to see this guy. You know, he's he's bumbling. He's inept. Good. The whole thing falls on him at the end. I don't know that it works when you have him being trotted off to prison at the end. Like, I, I feel bad for him. I think you're supposed to be more like, what an idiot. Mm, like, oh, gee, Willikers. What a, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 Clouseau. Um. Yeah, I, I think that's probably where it falls down. I was just thinking, I, I was racking my brain while you were talking there because I, I swear there was a film was covered where the lead was actively cheating on his partner and he was being played as like the lead and I just, it rubbed me the wrong way. I feel like it was one of our 80s films. I don't think it was Gotcha. I think it's in that vein. And I think it was actually a comedy. Um, do you know, can you, can you kind of feel it? Like you know what I'm talking about. Yes, you are talking about something, and I can't, uh, for the life of me, figure out. It wasn't trench coat. No. Um, God, 
it may have even been a Patreon movie or something like that. Um, oh, I know. Was it Hanover Street with Harrison Ford? Hanover Street. Yes. Very well done, Cam. Connection there to uh, Christopher Plummer, who goes on to play, uh, you know, the Phantom. Well done. Yeah. Very well done. But um, yeah, I remember just having trouble with the concept of trying to root for a guy who's, well, I mean, he's doing something I dislike. Most people dislike cheaters in relationships. Some people don't really care. But for me, it gets my back up on you know on at the first step. So I I I, I also wasn't rooting for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, yeah pretty, pretty dysfunctional. Uh, yeah, and I'm right. I, I I don't really understand how that marriage came together or lasted. I guess she was just using him to feed the information to the Phantom, right? That was the whole idea. Must have been, yeah. I mean, there's is some funny stuff when like he's trying to seduce her. Uh, one night and she's like sending him out for milk and all that like it's very clear that um she's not so into this marriage period yeah there, I, I i've heard similar things mm, mm, fair enough yeah you you keep sending me out for uh paracetamol because you have a headache <laughs> well i i think it's time we ask the question cam can we turn the pink panther into a spy film and i think this one is bloody obvious it's pretty simple. Would you like to spell it out? Well, I don't know. You said it's you said it's pretty obvious. So why don't you uh, give your pitch? Okay. Uh, well, okay. Well, I think you have to make uh, Clouseau the spy. Pretty right. simple. And he is infiltrating a group of people to find the Phantom and catch him in the act. Simple as. That's that's how I would take it. I mean, it's really not hard to just turn Clouseau into Tremble really from um casino royale sure, right like sure it's it's almost like a one-to-one he and he even did you notice clouseau had a golden gun later in the movie did he i didn't catch he, that his his like gun that he's running around firing all over the place in the hallways is gold that's such a weird idiosyncratic choice as well like there's a lot of bond connections here or, or we're overthinking it one of the two i think there's a lot of bond connections it's something in the air i mean think about it this movie's coming out like one year after Dr. No, it comes out, you know, the same years from Russia with love. Mm. There was just something in the kind of the, the vibe in terms of making popular entertainment at this point in time that, uh, and like the bond books were quite famous as well. And had all that. The president say he loved one of them. I think it was. And from Russia with love. Yeah. It was from Russia with love. JFK was a huge fan and, um, very music driven, both of them. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think that really do, you know needs much thought. I think you just turn Clouseau into the spy. And, and, and actually, a little bit of how the sausage is made. Cam and I have gone back and forth on the Pink Panther series is whether we include it as a full series of spy films uh, like we did for, say, The Men in Black or um, we just pick out the ones that's really more spy-related, which I think is what we're going to do for, say, the Fast and Furious franchise. There's a couple of them that are very spy-related, but most of them really don't do it so uh i i guess we've just settled on doing that one then cam yeah the pink panther strikes again totally applies it's kind of spoofing the 60s spy movement but the second one's you know a murder mystery third one's kind of like this it's more of just a jewel thief movie and yeah that's it's probably just gonna be that one which one's that one like the fifth uh the fourth so that's that's peter sellers coming back yeah peter sellers um is in all he's in the first Five, six, yeah. Is he? I thought the Inspector Clouseau, the third one, hasn't got him in it. 
Okay, there's the one called Inspector Clouseau, which is an offshoot. It's not in the same continuity or anything. It was more of okay. an attempt to just kind of do this spin-off of, okay, Sellers didn't want to come back after Shot in the Dark, so let's just try to make money out of this. Let's make an Inspector Clouseau movie with Alan Arkin that we can launch into into its own thing. And it was a box office failure and it went nowhere. It's It's not even really acknowledged much anymore. Okay, so it canonically, it goes this, a shot in the dark, and then the return of the Pink Panther. Yeah, that's right. Right. Like I'm in waiting. the in the box set I have, it's actually a weird box set in that it excludes Return of the Pink Panther. I don't really know why. I had to buy that one separately, but uh, it must be a rights issue somewhere along the line. But yeah, Inspector Clouseau is not in those box sets. But you, you own a copy, I assume. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have all of them, except for the Steve Martin ones. Oh. Those suck. Okay. Well, I I would say if you are into Peter Sellers, if you're into David Niven, if you like a 60s comedy, this is probably something to check out. I'm not sure I would want to dive into the Pink Panther box set myself afterwards. I would give the next one a shot because the it's completely different and it's flat out hilarious. Okay. So you're saying I should give a shot? Yes. In the dark. A shot in the dark, 100%. I wouldn't even look at this movie in considering to watch A Shot in the Dark. Well, here's a question for you then. For people who are listening who have never necessarily watched a Pink Panther film, we have watched the first one. You've watched them all. Would you recommend they start here or would you recommend they go for like The Return or something? Let's say I had kids. And I was like, kids, I want to show you the Pink Panther movies. I would start with Shot in the Dark. Okay. It's kind of like, Scott, we're Star Trek fans. You know, if you had kids, would you sit them down and make them watch Star Trek, the motion picture? Yes. Or would you say, <laughs> or would you say let's start with Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, and roll from there? Life is pain. Start from the motion picture <laughs> and grow. That's actually not a bad comparison, though. Like, Pink Panther is kind of Star Trek, the motion picture. It's maybe not as slow and plodding as the motion picture. No, but they feel very different than that which came afterwards. And for me, like, this is a movie... People that want that 60s energy, like, you know, really effective, you know, big budget, Hollywood studio 60s energy, I think this movie can be fun to watch. I enjoyed watching it last night. Is it one that if a friend asked me, Hey, is the Pink Panther really funny? I'm looking for a comedy to watch. I would not say to watch it. I'd be like, ah, you know, eh, watch Shot in the Dark. You might enjoy that one. Um, this one is kind of more of a curiosity, but as a kind of just a, a work of 60s tone, it, it's fun. But that's a specific audience. Ever since you mentioned comparing this to the motion picture, I keep just going up with Clouseau unit. <laughs> Such a weird connection. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, I, I think there is... There's some connective tissue here. Maybe go check out Shot in the Dark. Maybe I will too. But uh, it's shorter. Oh, is it? Yeah, like ninety minutes. Are we going like to ninety minute comedy territory? Like now I at think this it's. Point? I think it's a hundred minutes. But yeah. Oh, now you're tempting me. Okay, maybe you'll get me back on board for the second one and turn me into a is it what panther head, panther hards, um, pink hards. No, can't call pan- them that. Panthards. Pan panthards. Yeah, pink hards is a different thing. <laughs> well, Cam, next time on Agents in the Field, we are going boldly to a galaxy far, far away. Uh-huh. Because we are tackling the hit film, 
1999's Star Wars Episode 1 A Phantom Menace. <laughs> let's try spinning. Let's it's a good trick. <laughs> Wizard, let's do this. <laughs> I have so many stories about this film. Uh-huh. This might be an extended Agents in the Field episode, I have to say. This this film almost got me arrested. Um, the filmmakers probably should have been arrested after this one. Yeah, well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch episode one. A Phantom Menace is probably a good time to watch it with Obi-Wan coming out very soon on Disney+. Plus. We're looking forward to that, too. And join us next time on Agents in the Field. We want to thank you all again for following us, supporting us, and being altogether the best people in the universe for for basically being here on Patreon. And, uh, yeah, you all rock. But until next time, listeners, it's no matter. When you've seen one Stratovarius, you've seen them all.